Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is the second week of our series, Women of Redemption. This message comes from Matthew 1 and Genesis 38. If you'd like to take notes, there's a link for that in the show notes. Thanks for joining us. And without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. Well, in this next few weeks, we've been doing a, uh, or we're doing a Christmas series leading up to Christmas Eve that's focused on a part of the Christmas story that we generally don't look at. It's, it's from Matthew, uh, but it's looking at people in Jesus' genealogy. And, and we're going to be looking at, first of all, the genealogy a little bit in Matthew 1, and then really dig into one story particular. And, uh, and we're going to be looking at especially Genesis 37 and 38. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn, turn to Genesis 37, 38. You can follow along with us because we're going to be looking at a lot of stuff today. We're going to be driving and kind of going through a story very quickly, and we want you to be able to follow along. Uh, with, because we're looking at such a long passage, we're going to read it as we go throughout our time this morning then rather than beforehand. But let me begin by opening in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the privilege that we do have to spend this time this morning. I thank you for your word, Father, for your truth, Father, for what it teaches us about not only what happened, but what it means for us today. I thank you for this great story. Father, it's an unusual story, but yet it teaches us something about not only who we are, but who you are and how you relate to us. I pray your blessing on our time. I pray that your spirit would speak through me and in spite of me. Father, help us each to hear what your word has for us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, we are doing a series on Christmas, on a part of Christmas that we may not always think about. You see, usually when we think of, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, the Christmas story, we start in verse 18 which tells us about where the angel came to Joseph after Mary was found to be pregnant and, and told him that he should go ahead and marry her, that, that the baby was of God. She was a virgin. He was, the baby was to be the Messiah. But that's not how actually Matthew begins his story. We usually we skip the first 17 verses of chapter 1 because Matthew doesn't begin his story of Jesus with the story. He begins it with a genealogy. Now, you might be thinking, why does he begin with the genealogy and why are we talking about that? What relevance is that? Well, part of why he did in that time and culture, when, we would in, when they would introduce anyone of significance, you wouldn't necessarily start by listing their accomplishments. In our time, that's what we do. You know, we said, well, here's a person and here's their accomplishments. Here's their job. Here's their title. Here's their academic degree. Here's their awards or what they've written. And, you know, through most of history and even through most of the world, you wouldn't start by listing personal accomplishments. You would start by listing their genealogy and the accomplishments of their ancestors. Now, this may seem really strange for us in modern America, but the fact is it actually still is what happens in much of the world even today. An extreme example of this is in India. The whole culture is defined by the caste system. Everyone is divided into five different castes, and your whole identity, your worth, your opportunities are dependent on what caste or what race you are born into. In India, it's not, you know, wh who you are, what you've accomplished, it's who your ancestors are. That defines everything. Or, or think about even the royalty system in Great Britain. Uh, royalty isn't chosen by intelligence or by accomplishment or anything that they've done. It's purely the result of genealogy. It's simply a matter of having the right royal ancestors. And so you could have someone who is a complete incompetent, completely self-absorbed, but because he has the right ancestors, he's still considered royalty, he's still a prince. I'm not thinking of Prince Harry, but, but you know, some of you all might have been. And, and, um, 
you know, you can relate to that. Now, in, in ancient times, genealogy was like a resume, and, and you would expect someone to have a resume that was kind of cleaned up, you know, take out the bad parts, emphasize the good things. And, and what we have in Matthew is, is some surprises. And because what we see here is that not everyone in the genealogy is the good, moral, you know, well-respected person you'd expect. And, and not only that, the big surprise is that when he gives this genealogy, genealogies at that time would all have been male-dominated. It would be father-son, that's it. And here we have generally a male-dominated genealogy, but Matthew puts in five women. That's totally unexpected. And not only that, but out of these five women, four of them were associated with stories that were kind of the biggest scandals of Jewish history. They were not part of the family tree that you'd want to acknowledge. And so we have to ask, why are these women listed here in Jesus' genealogy? Wouldn't expect them there. And even if you were to put some women, there were women that were, you know, uh, heroines of the faith and people that everyone would have looked up to. And he doesn't put them there. Instead, he puts these women drawing attention to their story. And so why did he include them? And I believe that the answer is that each of their lives teach us something about Jesus' life and his ministry. Before Jesus, or Matthew gives us a word about Jesus' life, his teaching, he gives us his genealogy, teaching us something about the, how the people that God chose to be part of Jesus' family tree is, a, in a sense, a living illustration of, of the, the meaning and purpose of his life and of his ministry. You see, everyone else, again, would go to their genealogy and they would see that as a resume. They would say, well, here, my credentials are established by the people that are in my family tree, what they did. And let me add to that by telling you what I have done, my good deeds, how well I've kept the law. Well, here we're pointed to people who didn't keep the law, who, according to the law of Moses, strictly you know, um, lived out by their background or by their actions, they would have been excluded from even the very worship and presence of God. But Jesus takes these people that are seemingly excluded by the law and he brings them into his family. He even here in Matthew celebrates his relationship with him. Now, if we're talking about merit, you see, no one would want to be related to these women, and let alone Jesus. But the point is that no one left to his own merit would ever be able to get into the family of God. But it's on the basis of grace. And on the basis of grace, look who's sitting at that table, this family table. Here you have a prostitute, a woman guilty of incest and sexual entrapment, an illegal alien, an adulteress. Because this is what Christmas is all about. You see, Jesus Christ came to earth to bring salvation. It, the gospel isn't about advice. It isn't about here's what you need to do. It's not about here's how to have a good record or to have a good resume to somehow impress God. The gospel is about Jesus Christ who came to earth, who lived the life that we should have lived but couldn't and then died the death that we deserved. And in his death, he becomes our substitute so that through our faith in him, we can have a relationship with God through grace. And what does that mean? It means it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done, what your past is. The gospel is you can never be good enough to earn God's favor, but on the other hand, you can never be bad enough to exclude yourself from God's grace. No matter what your past is, by God's grace, you can be part of God's family. Now, that's what we're going to see in these stories, and we're going to look at the first of these stories this morning. And, uh, and it's probably the most dysfunctional, the strangest out of all of them. 
And, and so we start off in Matthew 1, and he gives us this introductory statement. This is the book of uh, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, kind of the overview. And then he right away begins to give us name after name, father to son. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and, Ju and his brothers, and Judah the father of Prez and, and Zerah by Tamar. And we read it as father and son, but right away we see really three anomalies all around one story. Again, look at verse 2. It, we go from father to son. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Now, it's not just Judah. It's, why are they put there? And, and, and God's telling us there's something here about the story of Judah and his brothers that is pointing us to understand something about Jesus and why he came. But that's not it. Then it continues. It's the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah. Now, now, later on, we find that Perez is the line, but why do we have Zerah, who's a twin? And again, it's, in a sense, these things are highlighted. So you have, here's an amyl, it's highlighted. Notice this, and here's a second one. Notice this, and, and then we have a third one right here. And they were by Tamar. That's the mom. You know, so why do you suddenly have the mom in there as well? And, and why is she important? And what we're seeing here is that Matthew, through, again, the Holy Spirit, is, is trying to draw our attention to this story to say, understand something in this because it teaches us about Jesus and his ministry. So let's start where the story starts, where it starts, where it talks about, okay, the first anomaly, Judah and his brothers. So let's go back to Genesis 36 or 37, and, and then we're going to see something about Judah, and we're going to see about the danger and deception of sin. Now, as we go to Genesis 37, we're kind of jumping into a story, uh, but if you study the story at all, what you're going to find is that it was a story of a really dysfunctional family. Here you have, it starts with the father, Jacob, and he had four wives, 12 children from those four wives. Now, hopefully here, none of you here has ever had four wives. A few of us, maybe when we were young and stupid, uh, had maybe two girlfriends at the same time, back when we were single, and, and, and that was really stupid because if the girlfriends ever found out about each other, it was, it, I mean, it was major, major problems, right? You know, it's, hopefully none of you ever did that, but... Um, now, we know how stupid that would be, right? Now, if, if that's bad to say, okay, well, I'm going to try two girlfriends, that's disaster in waiting. Here you have four wives, and they all know each other. They know about each other. They're living together. And, and so there's incredible dysfunction and tension, not only between the wives, but it's spilled out to the sons as well. And we see this out of those 12 sons, one was a clear favorite, a guy named jo uh, Joseph. And, and Jacob wasn't shy in letting everyone know that he preferred Joseph. He was one of the youngest. He even gave him this multicolored coat that was a symbol of his favoritism. And, and as a result, the other boys hated Joseph. And, um, and so now the Bible tells us, we're picking this up in 37, and it tells us that, that Jacob had sent the brothers out to take care of the family sheep. And then the dad sends Joseph out to go check on their brothers. And they see him coming, and their hatred just overwhelms them. They plan to kill him. And then they think about it and say, well, let's just throw him in this empty well for a little while, and then we'll figure out what to do. So they, they, tell, they do that. They strip him down. They throw him in this well. And then verse 25 says they sit down to eat. Now, just even think about that for a minute. They, they sit down to eat. Why? Be, well, because, well, attacking our brother and stripping him and throwing him away. Well, if you work up an appetite doing that. I mean, that's hard work. And, 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 they, and here Joseph is crying out for help. He's just pleading. And they're like, hey, let's break out our lunch. And you talk about hard people. Now, while they're eating, they look up and they see this caravan 
with camels and they're going down to Egypt. And here's where we're introduced to Judah, our main character. Verse 26, we read, Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? So here's his reasoning. It's basically saying, hey, guys, if we kill Joseph, I know we gain getting rid of him, but, you know, we could do better than that, can't we? And so I've got an idea. So he continues. He says, come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listen to him. Hey, you know, I've got this idea. Let's not only get rid of him, but, you know, let's sell him. And then we've got something to show up. Then you know, it's a win-win, two for one. And then he shows a sensitive side. He says, why? Because... Because he's our brother. Hey, we don't want to do anything bad, like kill our brother. That would be terrible. Let's just sell him. You know, it's just, and that's kind of the reasoning that's going on here. And then they all agreed. Hey, that's a good idea. Now, remember, this is all Judah's idea. He's the main character here. Now, even as that, you think about him sitting down and eating, and then they're, you know, coming back, and hey, we're not going to do anything bad. We'll just sell him. You know, they were convinced that what they were doing really wasn't that bad. Joseph deserved it. And again, in the same way, we have this amazing ability, I think even today, to justify sin. We do things that the Bible clearly says is wrong, but well, now we reinterpret the Bible or culturally, you know, here's why it really isn't that bad. And that's what we need to realize is that when we do that, we might not think it's bad. We might excuse it. But sin is always something that is established by God. And when God says it's wrong, it doesn't matter what we think. It's always wrong. And it's God's design. And anytime we go against God's design, there are always consequences. Think about it this way. God's moral law is built into creation very, in a very similar way than the laws of nature. You know, gravity is a law of nature. And I've used this illustration before. You think about that. You could not believe in gravity. You might not like gravity. But if you go to a 10-story building and you walk off the 10-story building, the law of gravity still works. And you're going to fall, and you're going to pay the consequences of falling 10 stories. And, and that's just, it's not God trying to get you. That's just natural consequences. And in the same way, the same thing is true with God's moral law. It's not that he's out trying to catch people and punish people for doing bad, or he's not angry. But it's simply the, the expression of the way the world works. And ignoring and breaking God's moral law will always lead to painful consequences in our lives. And that's what we're going to see played out here in this story. So verse 28 tells us that they dragged Joseph out of the well, they sold him into slavery, and, um, but then they realize, okay, well, there's a problem. Well, you know, dad's going to notice that he doesn't come back. And so they need to figure out a way to explain Joseph's disappearance. And so what they do is what we still do when we have sin. We try to hide it. We try to bury it. We try to ignore it. And, you know, think about it. When we do something wrong, what do we do? We want to hide it from other people. We don't want to be exposed and in time, we even try to hide it from ourselves. And so let's see how this plays out. So, you know, the, Judah and the brothers, they realize we've got to explain this to dad. And so look at what they do. Verse 31, they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in, in blood. And then they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found, please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And so they look at it, and they don't really lie. They just dip in blood and let him come to their own conclusions because they don't want to do anything bad by lying. And, um, and, and what I want you to see is there's a very unique word here. Now, I'm going to draw this out. It's going to make sense later on. But when they say, this we found, please identify whether it's your father's, they actually use this really strange, really unusual word. It, it literally could be translated, this we have found, recognize whether it's your son's robe or not. 
And it's this word that has the idea of not only saying you recognize, you identify it, but you recognize what it means. In this case, you identify it and you recognize with it's covered with blood that it means that he's probably killed. And now it doesn't, it seems like, why are you drawing this out? It's important because the word's going to be used later in the story. All right, it's setting us up for something. Now, the father concludes that the, you know, Joseph has been killed. Then he begins to mourn his son. And, and look at verse 35. It tells us that all his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him. All his sons, who includes Judah. And what's that mean? Here you have Judah, the guy that knows why Joseph isn't there. The guy that is responsible for Joseph not being there. The guy that took the lead in betraying and selling his brother. And now he's going to say, Dad, I'm sorry. I know you love Joseph. We all miss him so much. And that's what you see happening. And for a period of Judah's life, what we're going to see is that's what defines him, this covering up this secret. Every day he talked to his dad, you know, we miss Joseph. Yeah, we really miss Joseph. That's who he was. He wanted to bury it. He wanted to forget about it. Joseph was gone in Egypt. I don't want to think about him again. But there's a problem. For any of us, when we have a secret, when we have a sin that we've not dealt with, that we've buried even if we try to bury it, it doesn't go away. Burying it doesn't mean that it's gone. And not only does it not only may hide the sin, but it, don't, it doesn't perfect, uh, make it go away. And it doesn't prevent the effects, the corrosive effects. See, think about it this way. It's almost like taking a 50-gallon drum of toxic waste and putting it in your backyard. You're saying, well, I don't see it. Well, the fact of the matter is it's going to rust and it's going to leak. And it's going to leak out, and, and over time, it's going to poison the ground that you live on, and, and not only poison you and impact you, it's going to poison everyone else who is close to you. And just because you don't see it, because it's buried, it doesn't mean it's gone. In fact, the longer we keep it buried, the more widespread the effects become. And I say that knowing that I know there's numerous people here today that you have buried secrets. You have things that you hope that no one ever knows, you, no one wants to know, and and I say this out of love and compassion. I don't want to expose you to hurt you in any way, but I want to warn you that burying sin doesn't make it go away. It's contaminating your life. It's, it's poisonous waste that's leaking. And God wants to heal you. Don't live with that. God wants to heal you. We're going to see how he does that by the end this morning. But if we leave it buried, what it's going to do is it can continue to contaminate. It's going to continue to leak. And, and we see it in the story. All we have to do is to see some of these, you know, these contaminating effects. Um, because the way that Judah's buried sin contaminated his life is the way that it always works. Now, first of all, it contaminates not only you, but also those around you. As we follow Judah's story in, in 38, you know, it's really dysfunctional. And here it gets from dysfunctional to a strange out kind of creepy um, here's what we read, and, and I'll kind of sum up the first 10 verses. And uh, uh, Judah gets married. He has three sons. When the first son is old enough to marry, he, he marries him to this woman named Tamar. That's the, the other name that we're going to see in this story. And, uh, and the Bible says after getting married, the oldest son was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. And that's all we're told here. We don't know exactly what. Now, after the son's death, it was the responsibility of the father-in-law of Judah to care for the widow of his oldest son. And part of that law was that it dictated the father-in-law should marry his, another son to the widow and they would have children and those children would be, for, for inheritance sake, would be considered the offspring of the dead son. So that's what Judah did. 
Now, the second son, though, realizes, okay, well, now there's only two of us, so we, the inheritance gets spread out two ways. If I have kids with Tamar, then that, that child gets my older brother's inheritance. It eats into my inheritance. And so he doesn't want to do what's right, what God's word has commanded. So it, you know, he basically would go in with her. He wouldn't seal the deal. You could read what it says there. I won't read those verses. Um, didn't do his duty. God struck him dead. Now, at this point, Tamar is likely a teenager. She's twice a widow. She's incredibly vulnerable economically, socially. Uh, there's no one to take care of her. And that's why the law had, the, you know, biblical law had this idea that the father-in-law would, would be the defender, that he would be the one that would care for the widow. And again, if he had any of the sons, she would, they would have to marry her. They would have sons by her. And so after the son, death of the second son, Judah goes to Tamar and he basically says, okay, I'm going to take care of you according to the law. I will be your provider. You know, when my, my third son, he's not old enough to get married. When he's old enough to get married, I'll marry him to you. And you go grieve as a widow. You know, don't call us, we'll call you. But the Bible's clear he never intended to keep that promise. Now in this, I want you to think about this whole story. I want you to think about Judah and his family. Here we have two sons that we're told that are so wicked, so evil before God, that God struck them dead. It's not like he just tells us they died. It tells us why they died, because they were evil. Now, how did Judah's sons grow up so messed up? Do you think that possibly the example of their dad, the contamination of his buried sin might have contributed? Where both of them grew up that wicked before God. No, in his mind, it was buried, it was gone, he isn't thinking about it, no one mentioned it, but it was toxic waste that was leaking out and that was contaminating his whole family. And in a few verses, we're going to see now Judah's daughter-in-law, Tamar, is, is likewise now contaminated by it. She becomes involved in some terrible behavior, sexual entrapment and incest. And, and while this isn't an excuse for her sin, the reason was because it was the effect of Judah's sin. What he failed to do for her led her down a path of sin. Why? Because his life is contaminating everyone around him. But it's not only that it contaminates us, but over time we become blind to the damage that it's doing to us and to other people around us. Now let's see how this plays out in Judah's life. Now remember that, Judah, you know, that, that Tamar is this young widow. She's um, your father-in-law is supposed to take care of her. And, and outwardly, Judah says, I'll do it. So we see that in verse 11. We read that, that Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Selah, my, younger, my son, grows up. That's the younger one. And, and so he says, that's what I'll do. But then we read the second half of the verse. And it's clear that he didn't intend to keep this promise. He's lying. And look at why. It says, wait until he grows up. Why? Because for he feared that it's, he would die. He being the son, youngest son. So Judah's looking at it saying, well, if she marries him, he's going to die just like his brothers. Now, what's going on here? What Judah's thinking is he's in denial. He's blaming Tamar for the deaths of his son. He's looking at it and he's not admitting they were wicked. Before God, they were wicked. He doesn't see that. He doesn't see that they, he doesn't even question whether they could have been contributed to the problem. He doesn't look at his own failure as a father. He doesn't look at any of that. What he says is, they got married, they died, it's her fault. She's bad news. She's the source of any problem. And, you know, if, if she marries the third son, she's, they're going to die as well, just because she's cursed. And that's the effect of buried sin. It not only contaminates those around us, but we're then blind to her, its effect. 
We don't see how we're the problem, or at least how we're contributing to the problem. We look around and say, if there's a problem, they did it. They're bad. They're evil. So we're never able to get over our own anger or buried sin, and it pollutes our relationship. We're blaming the other person. And not only then we blame, but as we're blind and we blame, that it also then leads to additional compromise, more compromise on our part. And again, look at what we see here. You know, Judah's totally failing in his responsibility before Tamar. And, uh, and he justifies it. And he, has, he doesn't tell her, you know, we're not going to do that. He says, I will, but just wait. And he lies about it. And one world compromise leads to another. Pick up, if you have your Bibles, in verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Sirah's uh, daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Tamnar to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira to the Amnelite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnar to shear the sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Ephnon, which is a road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. So she realizes that he's lying to me. And what she does is she hears this. She now takes off her widow's clothes and she dresses as a prostitute. She hears that Judah is coming here. She dresses as a prostitute. Now, why does she do that? Because she knows Judah. She knows his character. And she knows he's the kind of guy who's going to go out and seek a prostitute. He's out on his own. That's who he is. She assumes what his father-in-law would do because she knew his character. So then what happens? Verse 15, Judah saw her. He thought she was a prostitute. She covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and come, let me into you. Let me have sex with you. For he did not know it was his daughter-in-law. And then they began to negotiate. Again, she knew that. He's the kind of guy that thinks, okay, I can have sex with anybody that I want. And at the same time, when he finds out that Tamar had sex outside of marriage, she's, he's ready to kill her. She's you know, he has a total, totally blind, total mob compromise, and totally misses it. And so not only that, now we're seeing that Judah is not going to give, keep his word and give the third son. Tamar takes matters into her own hand, and she goes out and pretends to be the prostitute and saying, okay, that's the way that I'm going to get pregnant. Now, in her mind, this is justified. In her mind, this is saying, I'm seeking justice. I'm doing what's right. Because there had been such moral compromise, right and wrong is that confused. That's what happened when we buried sin. That's what happens is that we, we just slide down the slope and we don't even realize it. That's the danger. So Judah hires her as a prostitute. Now they have to agree on a fee. So we pick it up and again, verse 16. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And so what will you give me? A young goat. Now, maybe that was a going price for a prostitute. Then I don't know, this is kind of strange, but that's, that's what happened. And uh, so then Judah looks in his wallet and says, well, I don't have a young goat with me. You know, it's kind of like, okay, so, so she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, basically give me some kind of pledge. And verse 18, what pledge shall I give you? Basically, give me something to guarantee that you're going to be good on your word. What pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So she gave them to her, or he gave them to her. He went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, taking off her veil and putting on the garments of widowhood. So he doesn't know it's a daughter-in-law. He leaves his cord, his seal, and his staff as a pledge. Now, this is, we don't understand what this is. This is something that only a wealthy person would have. Uh, it was basically, you would have something like this. It was a, some kind of um, 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 seal. 
And when you would make a contract, a, wealth, a wealthy person, they would put wax on it, they would put their seal, and it was their signature. And, uh, and, and so it was usually, you could tell that it had something there and it would be tied usually to their staff. And so that's what he left. And it's almost like it's of greater value than the goat. It's like leaving your credit card and saying, here, let me go get some cash. And the person runs off with a credit card. That's basically what happened here. And, um, and so here you have this guy that is you know, compromising and, and beyond the more compromise, what you see is that he not only compromises, but he becomes self-righteous. And that's what happens is when we compromise, we bury stuff, we compromise, and then we become self-righteous ourselves, hiding our own sin and judgmental towards others. So what do we, if we, verses 20 to 23, Judah t uh, goes and tries to bring the goat, has somebody bring the goat to her. She has gone home. They can't find her. So he just writes it off. He basically says, I don't want to embarrass myself. Why? Because he doesn't want anyone to know his sexual sin. He doesn't want himself exposed. But then, verse 34, or 24, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah's response is direct and harsh. Verse 24, he said, bring her out, let her be burned. And, and we, we've got to realize the harshness of this. Even in this time, I mean, this was incredibly harsh. You, you would seldom burn anyone, but that was for the worst of crimes. Right? Because it was a form of execution, torture. And, and what he's doing is such an overreaction. It's amazing. Now, why would he do this? Why would he respond with this kind of hatred, with this kind of evil? And the answer is in the story itself. If you go back to verse 11, what did we read in verse 11? Judah blamed Tamar for his son's deaths. When he looked at that, he wasn't willing to admit they were evil or I've messed up as a dad. It was, no, she's evil. She's the reason they died. She brought it out somehow. And so over the years, he's created this picture in his mind of this evil woman who is, you know, the cause of his son's death, and he's justifying himself, and he's been doing it. Now that she's caught in some sin, he responds with hatred, and he's kind of basically saying, I knew it. You know, it confirms everything I believe. She's an evil woman. She's, you know, I knew there was something bad. You know, she, you know she's a whore. Go, go kill her. Now, what we've got to realize is that we can look at this and say, man, he's, he's, man, he's sick. He's, you know, I can't believe this. This is, again, something that can be true in all of our hearts. Why? Because every one of us has this need to, to not only want to try to hide, but then justify our behaviors. And so we try to shield ourselves from the reality of, of how wrong we are, of the bad that we've done. And, and not only we try to hide from ourselves, but then we... We, we shift the blame. So if anything bad happens to us, if any, if even if we've done something wrong, well, they made us do it. And if something bad, they've caused us to do it. And we all do it. And it's not just a matter of, you know, the, the fact is, think about it this way. Regardless of our perspective, we can think of people that are very conservative, morally, politically, whatever, and, and they're set on a set of more rules. And often that they look on people on the more liberal persuasion and they say, well, they don't keep the rules. They're bad. They're evil. And, and we talk about how evil that they are. But at the same time, there are people that are more liberal politically and morally, and they do the exact same thing. They have a set of rules that they define righteousness by. It's just a different set of rules. And they look at people that are more conservative and they say, they're evil, they don't keep the rules, they're bad people, and, and we judge people. And if anything bad happens, it's their fault. And both sides are doing the same thing at the same time. The Bible's clear, there's none that is righteous. All of sin and fall in the short of God. All of us, we've got to look at ourselves. Don't try to cover up, don't try to blame. 
So look what happens now in verse 25. He says, okay, take her, burn her. Verse 25, we read, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And so while she's going out, she said, I got a message from my father-in-law. And she takes those things that she had, he had given to her three months before, and she's kept and says, okay, do you recognize these? You know, if I deserve to die, so does the person that got me pregnant, and this is the guy. Here's what I want you to realize. When it says, please identify who these are, it's the exact same word that Judah used when Judah had sent the coat to his dad and said, do you recognize? It's literally, she says, and she said, recognize whose these are. And again, it's the word that is reminding Judah in his mind of saying, do you remember you did this? Do you remember using the same word, the same argument? And not only that, the word means not only do you recognize whose these are, but do you recognize what it means? If I deserve to die for my immorality, you know, the other guy that got me pregnant serves to two. And suddenly it gets his attention. He suddenly deserves, realizes that he deserves to be in the same fire. In fact, his sin is worse than hers. And what we see is that the spiritual renewal that comes with recognizing our sin and repenting to God. You know, I believe at this moment that he saw this, he not only recognized the wrong that he has done to her, but his hypocrisy, his self-righteousness. And, and God, not only that, but confronted him on this secret that he's been hiding for decades. And, and I believe that this unique, of, this use of this unique word that God, I believe, put into her heart, her mouth in a sense, God did it because it was a way of reminding Judah of his own lies, his own deception. It was helping him to be able to see not only, okay, it's, who's is this, but what does it say about you? What does it say about your character? And suddenly he saw his greatest sin, his greatest secret revealed. And at that point, I think there's a spiritual reawakening. You know, look at what it says in verse 26. And Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son, Shelah, and he did not know her And again. Now, when it says that he identified she's more righteous, she's not saying she's better than me. She's, he's basically saying, I'm worse than her. She's guilty, I'm more guilty. And it's the self-identity. Now, here's what you want to see. When it says he identified them, it again is that same word. And then Judah recognized and said, she is more righteous than I. He, she recognized not only what this was, but what it meant that he was guilty. And that's where he saw, I am more guilty. It's, my, it's you know, not only what I've done with her, the deepest sin. And if Tamar deserved to be burned because of what she did, then Judah deserved far worse. Again, he not only slept with her, but he failed in his obligation. He, he lied to her about giving her, through, didn't care for her, didn't keep up the law. He sold his, his brother into slavery. He'd done all these things. If anyone be, deserved to be judged, he deserved. But why then do we have this story going back to realizing this is what Matthew put in the beginning of the Christmas story? How does this fit in here? And, and how, do, how does the story of Tamar and Judah and the Christmas story all fit? And how does it fit into our story? Because it's telling us the whole idea. Matthew highlighted this story because Jesus didn't come to give us Here's advice how to live life. He didn't come for good people that had good resumes. He didn't come to expose our sins so that he could judge us and, and, and throw us into the pit. No, he came for people like Judah and like Tamar and like you and like me.
people who have fallen short, people who have terrible secrets that we've hid for years. And he doesn't come to expose our sins so that he could judge us and give us the judgment we deserve to throw us into the fire. No, he came to expose our sins and then to take the punishment we deserved. That he threw himself in the fire. That's what the cross is all about. So that after taking our punishment, he could then bring us into his family, into intimate relationship with himself, not based on what we've done, but based on what he has done. So again, you th I think about what it says in John 1, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. We have the right to become children of God, part of the family of God. How? By believing in his name. Not for those who are born or, or of blood or the will of flesh. It's not by bloodline or, or someone else or, or our will or what we seek to do, but by the will of God, by the grace of God. See, before he, Judah couldn't see his own sin. He could only see other people's sin, but suddenly now he's not justifying his sin. He's suddenly realizing, I'm guilty. My sin is greater. I'm guilty before God. And you see that in the sense that it brings him to a place of, of repentance, Confession isn't just a matter of admitting that we did wrong. It's literally seeing sin the way that God sees it. Seeing ourselves in brokenness as God is. And, and that's what you see here. It, it, there's, it, there's no defense. I'm guilty. Now, that's hard for us to do. You know why it's hard? Because we fear that if we're exposed, we're going to be rejected. How can anybody want to be, if everybody knew my heart, if anybody knew my secret, how can anybody love me? How can anybody accept me? How could God care? You know, if, if the church knew my secrets, uh, they would never let me here. And here's what I want you to realize. We go back and we see this is all part of the message of Christmas. It's all part of the Christmas story because the gospel isn't about our resume. It isn't about us trying harder. It isn't about how good we are. It's about recognizing our need and accepting what God has done for us, accepting relationship by grace. Because it doesn't matter who you are, because the gospel tells us you can never be good enough to earn God's favor. We could never, all of us have sinned, all have fallen short. None of us are good enough. And part of the gospel starts by acknowledging that. But it also means that we not only acknowledge that we're never going to be good enough to earn God's favor, but also you can never be bad enough to keep you from God's grace. And no matter what we've done in the past, no matter what you've done, no matter all the things that you see, you know, the secrets that you say, I can't admit that. And God knows. And God's saying, I want to be able to heal. I want to be able to get there. And I want to be able to love you, bring you into family, not based on what you have done, but based on your acceptance of what I have done for you. That's the invitation that he gives to each one today. And that is it for this week's message. If you have a question about the message, Community Church, or Jesus Christ, send us a text to 330-400-3242. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.